Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I am your host, as always, Carrie Parker, and we've got uh, an interview show for you today. Actually, part one of an interview show. Some of the interviews lately have been getting kind of long, and uh, this one in particular was so technically challenging that I thought we might want to split it up into two. And I may start doing that more in the future as these interviews have gotten longer, uh, splitting them over uh, a couple different shows. So uh, we're going to be talking today with Bill Buddington from the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Of course, uh, an organization I've mentioned multiple times in the show, one that we really appreciate and love on the show for all the work they're doing. And one of the things they've done is created some really nice web browser plugins to help protect your privacy. And one of the tools they've created is called Panopticlick. And that's based off the term Panopticon, which I have mentioned on the show before. But just to quickly recap, uh, this was an idea that came from the late 1700s, I believe. And it was a new design for institutions, or basically prisons, where it's kind of a cylindrical shape. All the, all the floors of the building are facing inwards in this round, in the, uh, this round cylindrical shape. And in the middle... Of, of all the rooms uh, facing outward is a guard tower. And the guard tower is set up such that the guards can see out, but the inmates can't see in. So the effect is all the inmates have to assume that at any given moment they can be seen and they are being watched, but they don't know when it is. So <laughs> they, the, the theory is, and proved to be correct, is that because they had to assume that they were being watched at all times, because they couldn't know when they were not being watched, they policed themselves, that they corrected their own behavior, that they stayed in line more often because they were afraid of getting caught. And unlike, you know, a more, more traditional cell, the big rectangular thing where you can see the guards making their rounds and you know when they may be near or when they've just passed and you might be able to get away with something, in this model where your room faces in toward the guard tower, and you can't see if the guards are looking at you or not. You have to assume they're looking at you all the time. So, <laughs> so this tool called Panopta Click is designed to help us understand how we're being tracked. And there's a very particular case of being tracked. So in this two-part interview episode, we're going to be talking about how we're tracked on the web, all the various technologies, and the really clever and almost devious techniques that these third parties, these advertisers and some of the websites that we're visiting go to great, great lengths to try to identify us or at least be able to remember who we are so that when we come back again, they know who we are. Or when we visit one site and then go to another site, they could say, oh, that's the same person. And they may or may not be able to associate your name with that identity, but they can at least say, oh, he, this, this person was over there and now they're over here, for example, to show them ads that were relevant. Maybe they were on one site uh, they were doing a Google search on, you know, 2019 model cars, SUVs or whatever. And then so when I go to another site, I can say, oh, that guy was just over there looking at cars. So let me show him ads for cars. And that's the benign case. Of course, there's probably plenty of other cases that we could envision where that might not be so benign. Like data brokers, where <laughs> these people are tracking what we do in order to sell that information to other people, not just use it to target advertising. Uh, anyway, so we're going to talk all about that in the show. And Bill Buddington, who we have on the show today, actually wrote the tool Panopticlick and has all sorts of great inside information about how all this stuff works, all the ins and outs, and it gets kind of technical. So before, before we get into the interview, I thought I'd at least go over some of the terms you're going to hear in this interview. And we try to explain some of them as we go, but uh, there's a lot of lingo in here, and I just want to kind of you know, give you a, a little bit of a definition of some of these terms before we get into it so that when, they, when you hear them in the interview, you'll know a little bit about what they mean. 
first of all, uh, let's define what a cookie is. When you're when you're browsing the web, it's a weird term, and, and I can't recall. Uh, I'm sure there's some interesting story about where it came from, but all it really is is when you go to a website, let's say example.com, uh, some website, and on that website there's advertising. Uh, the primary site you're going to, example.com, that would be considered the first party. Uh, and if there's advertising on that web page, let's say for some other product, there's multiple little areas and there's a little banner on the top, there's little ads at the bottom, maybe there's a floating ad. Uh, those are usually from third parties. Those are from somebody else, not example.com. And so we refer to those as third parties, third party content. And each of those, you know, this, this web page is basically like a patchwork quilt. It's, a, it's made up of all these little bits and parts that come from potentially multiple places, almost always multiple places. And each of those little things, each of those little patches in, in the quilt could drop a cookie on your computer. And all that is, it's a little bit of a date item. Usually what it is, it's just some sort of a unique ID. Uh, sometimes it's things like if you go to log into example.com, you have an account there and you log into example.com, they can drop a little cookie on your computer saying, okay, this guy's good. Here's a token. I, once you once I've validated your, your username and your password, I'm going to give you back a token. And under the covers, unbeknownst to you, without you having to do anything, your browser, when you go back to example.com, is going to present that token to example.com. And say, hey, you've seen this guy before, right? Here's his token. They're like, oh yeah, good. He doesn't have to log in again. We'll consider him to be logged in. Um, and so that's that's what cookies were originally meant for, and it's a good thing, and it makes a browser work better and makes your experience on the web greater. Uh, you can set preferences and all sorts of things that it will remember, and the way it remembers is by actually putting that data on your computer. And when you come back, your web browser under the covers gives up all the cookies that were set for example.com, let's say. So when I go back to example.com sometime later, the first thing it does is it sends all the cookies it has for me, or they can at least be requested by example.com, so that it can say, oh, yeah, this guy's logged in before, and oh, he likes his you know, web page to be blue, uh, <laughs> you know, whatever. Or and he's got two or three items still sitting in his cart, uh, though honestly today that's not done that way, but it could be done that way. Anyway, that's all a cookie is. A cookie is just a little bit of data. Um, what cookies have become, however, is a way for tracking people. And it's one of the most basic tracking techniques there is. And we're going to get into that in the, uh, in the interview. So I'm not going to tell you too much about it here, but just, just know that's that, that's what it means to be a cookie. And that's the difference between a first party and a third party, uh, context when you're talking about these things, when you go to example.com, that's the first party, but when example.com serves you an ad from adclick.com or someplace else, which you don't even notice, it's all done behind the scenes. That ad, you know, ad or click ad or whatever.com is a third party in that case. But then you go to another site and that's also served ads from click.com. That's another third party, but in that case, it's the same party in both cases. And it knows you anyway, we'll get into that. In the, <laughs> we'll get into that in the interview. Um, we also talk about a little bit, some other, um, web tech knowledge or web tech terms like HTML and HTTP and CSS. So HTTP, which you probably recognize is what you, how you usually start your web addresses, you know, HTTP colon slash slash example.com. And that just stands for hypertext transfer protocol, uh, which is basically the language of, uh, the communication language of the web, uh, the web pages themselves. Like when I go to example.com and it returns data to me, that looks like a web page that is what we call HTML or hypertext markup language. Uh, and it's gotten really fancy and it's gotten all sorts of cool fonts and colors and buttons and widgets and things. And a lot of that has to do with something called CSS or cascading style sheets. So I know it's a lot of word salad and a lot of, a lot of alphabet soup. 
but don't worry about it. Those are just web technologies. It's all about uh, how computers communicate and how they show you all those pretty web pages. One other technology that is also extremely popular on the web today is what's called JavaScript, or sometimes it's just called script or scripts for short. Uh, we're going to talk a lot about that on the on the show, and I don't want that to go over your head either, but it's it's a computer language that's built into your web page, and it allows your web page to do even fancier things. Uh, almost every web page today that does anything remotely interesting is done via JavaScript. And it's just computer code. It's just a computer language, and your web browser web browser knows how to read and and process that to make fun things happen. Uh, unfortunately, there's also a lot of ways that that can be subverted uh, to do things that are not necessarily in your best interest. So there's always this cat and mouse game of your browser and your privacy settings and your privacy plugins trying to determine what is a safe and private action that these JavaScripts and, and developer scripts can do and things that they can't. Again, something we're going to talk about in depth in this interview. And I just wanted to give you a little bit of a prep uh, prep course on some of these terms before we dive in so that when they when you hear them coming out of our mouths, uh, you'll have a little bit of idea what they mean. Okay, hopefully, hopefully I haven't scared you off because this is really good, really good material. And uh, let's not waste any more time. Let's get into the first part of our interview with Bill Buddington from the EFF, all talking about how we are tracked today on the web. All right, Bill Buddington's a senior staff technologist at the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF. We've mentioned multiple times in the show. Uh, he works on privacy and security enhancing projects such as HTTPS Everywhere uh, and Panopticlick, a tool that alerts users how vulnerable they are to browser tracking. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, so I, you know, I've been talking about Panopticlick, which is your tool, um, for quite a while, and it's gone through some revisions since we've initially uh, announced it on the show. And um, I was just playing around with it the other day, and I was, and I'm finding some interesting things about my own browser and how, you know, I consider myself privacy conscious. I've got some of the privacy tools, including yours, installed, and I was still shocked at how. Uh, how fingerprintable I, I was. So I wanted to get you on the show and talk about that. So um, before yeah. we get into those details, uh, though, why don't you tell us a little bit about, um, give us another refresher, like what does EFF do? What, what, and how are you involved with EFF? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm a technologist at EFF. Um, so EFF is the Electronic Frontier Foundation. Uh, we're a 501c3 nonprofit based uh, in San Francisco. And we kind of, combine this triforce of activists, lawyers, and technologists to protect users and educate them about some of the dangers that they might face um, with security and how to uh, protect their privacy and also empower users to have control over their own devices. Um, you can find us on the web uh, at uh, EFF.org. And yeah, and I encourage you to just browse that site and see what we have up there. Yeah, and we'll get into some of that later because you've got some really great resources on that website. Um, so uh, since we're talking about tracking today and browser tracking in particular, let's start with the very basics. What, is it, what does it mean when I'm being tracked on the web? When I say we're being tracked, what, what does that really mean? Yeah, and I think that, you know, just to take a step back, you know, what do I mean by tracking in general? I kind of have three criteria uh, by which I mean, you know, what, you know, tracking and one thing that I think tracking has to be is it has to be pervasive. So for instance, if I'm visiting newyorktimes.com, I kind of know already that New York Times knows what I'm browsing right. on that site. But I might not know that there are third parties that are 
being included on New York Times, such as advertising agencies, such as fonts, such as analytics companies. And those resources, those third parties, are also included on a ton of other sites. And because of that, you have this kind of pervasiveness that uh, goes along with tracking. So, so um, you know, you have your movements across the web being tracked from one site to another. And so that's kind of my first criteria of what I mean by tracking. And I think that second one has, means that it has to be, it has to be non-consensual to be considered mm-hmm. tracking in my book. It's being displayed to the user and they're opting in. Then I don't really consider that tracking. I think mm-hmm. that that's something else. And, you know, the third criteria, uh, it has to be hidden. So basically, it has to be something that if it's displayed to the user and they know that they're being watched, then I feel like that's not really tracking. That's something else as well. Mm. Um, so, you know, being pervasive, non-consensual, and hidden are, are the three criterias that, that I mean when I say tracking. Uh, and it's kind of gotten to a point where tracking is really, really pervasive on the web. It's just kind of everywhere. We yeah. take it for granted. And that's not a great situation to be in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it, and it really, it comes down to surveillance. And now it's maybe surveillance capitalism. It, you know, you, you can talk, it, most people think of surveillance with, you know, the, the government, you know, law enforcement, intelligence agencies. But in reality, it's the same surveillance. It's just different people and different motives, right? Um, and the main motive here is advertising, correct? Yeah. And I think that there's, you know, three main types of companies that do tracking. So, you know, there's advertising networks, companies like, you know, AdZerk or um, Mixpanel. There's also analytics companies. You know, Google is a great example of a company that does a lot of tracking. And they started doing this with Google Analytics. And then they also bought DoubleClick, you know, maybe a decade back. And that kind of furthered their business uh, into the tracking realm. And the third type of tracker is direct data brokers. So this isn't really advertising. This is just a company that basically collects your information to sell it for to anyone that wants that information for whatever purposes they might use that information for. You know, that notably this doesn't actually include the content creators themselves. This doesn't include the New York Times or the Washington Post. So they're not directly the ones tracking you. They might, for instance, keep server logs um, they might keep IP addresses in order to, for instance, make sure that if there is some attack on their website, they can block certain IP addresses or certain users. But they don't actually do tracking in the way that I mean tracking. Right. And and actually, the, the other key distinction I would suppose is, is that you know, companies like Google and Facebook are obviously tracking like us like crazy, but that's because they're their own advertising networks as well. They are advertising companies. They are not search engines. They are not social media. It, primarily, their their revenue sources is ads. So they sell ad space. They control the cost of that ad space by, based on how much they know about you and how well they can target those ads. But they're not really, like a, unlike a data broker, they're not actually turning around probably and selling that to anyone because that's their bread and butter. That's how they're making their money, right? As opposed to the data brokers where that is their product. Yeah, and I think that you hit the nail on the head when you said their revenue model. Uh, when we look at companies like Apple, for instance, Apple is selling a direct product to the consumer. They make their money by selling Apple devices. They're high-end devices. They cost a lot of money. 
and they don't have to sell advertising in order to make a buck. And when you see this, you know, low-end device that's an Android device, well, you have to kind of consider, well, that might be a low-end device that might, you know, not cost a lot of money, but my data is actually also part of that product. So my when I you know, turn on the phone, there might be third-party apps that are side-loaded onto that, like by, a, by the OEM, by the vendor, um, that's actually tracking my behaviors when I use that phone. So I think that there's an economic aspect to this too, that uh, if you can afford not to be tracked, hmm. then you're not tracked. I think that's kind of an important distinction to make, that yeah. you have devices that are you know marketed towards the lower income bracket and that means that you're more susceptible to tracking that's a problematic aspect of this yeah that's an excellent point all right so you know dig into that a little bit more for me what what is how does this business model work how do these people make money off of tracking yeah so i think that you know when we talk about tracking it's a huge industry the ad the digital ad business is a huge industry 72.5 billion dollar industry wow. in a 2016 estimate by the interactive advertising bureau and it actually works right you see that for behavioral tracking you have a 5.4 times increase in a click-through rate when you're talking about retargeting which means showing the same ad or same product over and over again to consumer you see that there's a 9.9 times increase uh, versus traditional method wow. for advertising so really, behavioral and retargeting increases ad revenue for the advertisers themselves. But interestingly, what we're not seeing, we're not seeing an increase in revenue for the publishers. Um, you know, hmm. If you look at the increase in the ad business over the 2015 and 2016 period, again, the Interactive uh, Advertising Bureau uh, has a figure of 21.8% growth. But the uh, publishers themselves, 40% of them, describe that they aren't actually seeing any ad revenue increase. <laughs> or it's shrinking or static. So this kind of has me asking the question to myself, where's the money, Lebowski? Yeah. <laughs> where's it going? Right? And so um, you know, I think that that's an area of further research. Why are the publishers not seeing that money come through? Interesting. And I think that there, there's a kind of obvious and cynical <laughs> answer. It's that the intermediaries are pocketing it. Right. And, and, you know, and of course, this is this is what they say when they're doing this. That, that Google and Facebook and all the, you know, what. In fact, even if you if you look at all the the dark patterns that they use to get you to buy into this and opt into this program, is it's all about customization. It's all about enhancing your experience. It's about you know we don't want to show you ads you don't want to see. You don't want that either, right? So let me let, you know, let me learn about you, and that way I can at least show you ads because we have to show you ads. At least let me show you ads that you care about, and that's and it's all done under the auspices of improving your experience. And then it has like really deleterious effect, right? Um, so, for instance, if you are in a lower income bracket, you'll be advertised disproportionately for uh, diploma mills. Mm. At you know, and this is a problem that Kathy O'Neill explains in her book, uh, Weapons of Math Destruction, um, that algorithms will target you for these diploma mills. And these are colleges that spend a large amount on advertising and a very small amount on their actual programs and educating their students and preparing them for mm -hmm. life outside college. And what happens is that they 
get these diplomas that aren't really worth the paper that they're printed on. And this is all because they've been targeted for this ad that they saw, clicked through, and said, hey, here's an opportunity. But, you know, this is a predatory uh, type of advertising. In a story by the Washington Post by uh, Jillian Brockwell in December, um, so Jillian Brockwell is an, an editor at uh, the Washington Post for videos. And uh, she wrote about her experience in December uh, where she was pregnant over, you know, the course of her pregnancy. She kept on seeing more and more ads mm-hmm. for, you know, uh, carriages, baby carriages and, and, and baby products. Well, last year she discovered that her baby wasn't moving mm-hmm. and uh, it was born, stillborn. Oh, yeah. Uh, I heard this story. Mm-hmm. It's awful. And, uh, and so after this obviously very traumatic experience happened, she continued getting these ads. She continued mm-hmm. getting ads about baby carriages and diapers and sugar. And, yeah. and so this is haunting her as Ugh. she's just trying to browse the web. And so these are, you know, you can say that you're marketing products that are more catered towards you. But obviously, this has really injurious effects, both socially and individually. Yeah, and I think it's it's the history part. It, it's kind of the the history part and the projection part that that, that goes where it goes right. I mean, DuckDuckGo, which is a, a great search engine and a privacy respecting search engine, they have ads, but they have ads based directly on what you just searched for, as opposed to what you've been searching for for the last three months and projecting ahead what you might be looking for then. It, you know, or that's where this one I think gets really creepy, you know, as opposed to, you know, if I, if I go to a search engine, I search on, you know, 2019 model cars, I expect to see ads for cars. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, it's, you know, two other sites later when I'm on somewhere else and I'm on a completely different site and I'm seeing ads for cars. That's when it gets creepy. So what's a really interesting tactic that brave took last year or actually a few years ago now is they started to, track what you're doing, but only locally in your own browser. So you'd be kind of sorted into these categories of I'm a car consumer or I like motorcycles or whatever it might be. And those categories are tracked internally to your own browser. So it's not kind of delivered to some third party that you don't know what's doing with that data. Mm. But Brave also downloaded a whole bunch of ads that are bundled with the browser in some way and displays those ads selectively based on your interests. So the advertiser doesn't know, you know, exactly what ads you're, you're, you're getting and thus doesn't know your interests. It can't derive your interests from those ads, but it's still getting seen, you know, it's still actually making revenue from your selected interests. So that's kind of uh, an interesting business model that Brave pioneered, um, you know, in the earlier or mid part of this decade. Right. And for the audience benefit, Brave is just another web browser, but it's one that you don't often hear about because you always hear about Chrome, of course. And yeah, and the ones that come with your computers, you know, Internet Explorer, Edge and Safari and Firefox uh, is to, you know, has somehow broken through as a, as a third browser, uh, as another browser. But Opera and some of these other and Brave and some of these other ones we don't often hear about. So um, thanks for bringing that up. And we'll definitely talk about some of those kind of solutions as we wrap up the program. But all right. So let's get back on topic. Um, how does web tracking actually work? When I go to a website and I search for something or look at something on Amazon and then I go to some other completely different website 
and all of a sudden I'm seeing ads for similar products. What happened there? What, uh, how is it, what is the technology, what is going on behind the scenes that allows them to do that? Right. So say you're browsing a news site, uh, a third party is included, say Google analytics, and they have access to a cookie jar basically where they can store information about you. And then you go to, you know, LA times and Google analytics is present on that site as well. And they have access to the same cookie jar. So this can basically um, say it's like a little ID that is unique to your browser and your browser alone. So they can kind of uh, know by, you know, basically pinging Google at, with that ID, both on LA Times and New York Times, and, uh, and correlate those two facts that you've visited both New York Times and LA Times, uh, and the specific pages as well, and the interactions with the pages, and, you know, how many times you visited the page, <laughs> and all this kind of information that really can be quite, you know, personal, for instance, you know, medical conditions web, yeah. on WebMD, et cetera. Um, so that's kind of how it works, uh, and that's kind of the traditional way of tracking. You use cookies to track. Um, Ed Felton published an article in 1999, uh, you know, lamenting the fact that trackers can track you based on placing cookies in your browser. So it's been around for decades. This is the prevalent form of tracking on the web, even to this day. But it's also something that you can easily take control of yourself again by clearing your cookies. There's add-ons that clear your mm -hmm. cookies every time you close your browser. Or you can do it manually just by going into your browser settings. So that's you know something that you have control over. But trackers have gotten sneaker and sneaker <laughs> sneakier over the years and uh, started presenting and uh, storing your information in something called super cookies mm. and super cookies are little bits of information that persist in your browser that circumvent those normal mechanisms in the browser of storing information so, for instance, uh, Sammy Konkar in 2010 presented this idea, and it's a super cookie subset called an ever cookie. <laughs> and so <laughs> I know there's a lot Love of technology here, but I'll uh, explain it. So an ever cookie, so basically if you have Flash installed in your browser, then Flash is able to store information about your browsing just like cookies are. But it's harder to get rid of flash cookies. Mm -hmm. And there are extensions out there that allow you to get rid of flash cookies. But it's a little bit you know, more difficult to actually purge those cookies. Well, Sandy Kamkar discovered that this is, only, this is not only true in Flash, but also in Java and Silverlight and other plugins that you might have installed. Mm -hmm. And if you don't delete these cookies in Flash and Java and Silverlight all at the same time, and only delete them in one, for instance, mm -hmm. then the Java code can then immediately propagate those unique IDs back to Flash after you've cleared it. So it persists. You know, it Even after you clear the Flash cookies, you need to clear them all at the same time in order to uh, make sure that they're actually purged. Wow. And this is extremely difficult to do. Yeah. And so this is, uh, you know, the idea of this ever cookie that circumvents the normal mechanisms of the browser that you use to delete your normal cookies and, you know, is extremely uh, uh, pervasive. And, yeah, that's kind of getting into some of the more advanced tracking mechanisms. I kind of consider super cookies and ever cookies 
one of the first forms of advanced browser tracking. Well, and then there's the big one, and that's what and the reason we brought you today, and that's browser fingerprinting. So tell us how that works and how that's used. Yeah, so browser fingerprinting is a technique that comes from the fact that every time you visit a website, you deliver these little things called headers. And no matter if you have JavaScript installed or not, you're going to deliver these headers. It, you know, These include your user agent string, which is kind of describes what browser you're using, the types of content that you can have delivered and parsed in your browser, the language settings that you have installed in your operating system. And these little bits of information are basically delivered to any website that you visit every time you make a request to that website. And this is this is ostensibly to help you. This is your browser without your without you doing anything. This is your browser trying to tell the website you're going to, hey, just when you send stuff back to this guy, this is this is what they can do. This is the what these are the fonts they have installed. This is the browser you're using in case you've got to do something special based on what browser they're using. It's ostensibly to, to help the website that you're trying to visit push back something that your browser can, can handle and looks good on your mm-hmm. computer, right? Yeah, that's right. And it also is just kind of a, you know, the, the way that the web works, it's built into the protocol for HTTP. When you see that HTTP in your browser, that's the protocol. And these web headers are just part of the protocol. Yeah, it helps you have that page rendered in a way that makes sense to you. It helps you, you know, get content that is of like different forms. Um, So that's kind of what uh, web headers are. These little pieces of information that's left by your browser. Uh, On the flip side, there's also, once that page is rendered, then, you know, JavaScript may be run. And using JavaScript, you can get even more information about your browser. For instance, you mentioned fonts. There's this really interesting technique that's called font enumeration. So the website will take a span tag, which is just a span of text, and it'll render some sentence into a number of different fonts, say a thousand fonts. And if the width of that span of text changes when you render a font, then you know that that font is installed on your computer Hmm. because it's changed and rendered into that font. And it does this a thousand times and it gets uh, you know, an enumeration of all the fonts you have in your computer. So that's a technique that is used from JavaScript. And there are a number of other types of JavaScript-derived properties about your browser. So what fingerprinting does is it takes all these bits of information about your browser and kind of stitches them together uh, into a unique pattern. Basically, it figures out what your browser looks like and how it differs from the other browsers that are delivering this information. And it clumps all that information together and runs it through what's called a hashing algorithm that just basically creates a unique fingerprint for your browser. And so if your browser is differs in any way <laughs> from other browsers, then it'll have this unique fingerprint uh, that you can, that, uh, that any website can kind of, uh, derive about your your browser and so you know originally we launched this product this this kind of website experiment called panopticlick and uh, it's still up you can go to panopticlick.eff.org but in 2010 we launched it 
And we encouraged volunteers to visit the website and test their own browsers, see how unique their browsers were. And we published a white paper based on our findings. We found that 84% of browsers had completely unique fingerprints <laughs> that distinguished them from all other browsers on the web. Wow. Amongst browsers with Flash or Java installed, 94% of them were uniquely identifiable. Wow. So this is a big problem. Yeah. And the problem has, I think, gotten, well, it's changed. <laughs> More advanced fingerprinting techniques have come along since then. But at the same time, the usage of Flash and Java has decreased over right. time. So I think that the problem has changed. And there have been subsequent studies that have shown a lower number of browsers or a lower percentage of browsers are uniquely identifiable. One study by Inir Enria, which is the French National Institute for Digital Sciences, showed that only a third of the browsers that they studied were unique. So I think that the methodologies differ here, uh, and there's reasons for the different results. But uh, if you test your own browser, you can see often that you do have a unique fingerprint if you go to panopticlick.eff.org. There are browsers that try to basically make your browser look like uh, you know all the other browsers. Um, for instance, Tor browser, if you use mm -hmm. Tor browser. So Tor um, is an anonymity network, and they go to great lengths to ensure that users of Tor are anonymous. And user of the, users of the Tor browser, which is a product of Tor, uh, have the protection of basically an anti-fingerprinting protection that's built into the Tor browser. What this does is make your Tor browser that you have installed look like every other Tor browser that's out there. And thus, it can't be fingerprinted. So this is a great advantage of using a you know, Tor browser is that you know, if you're going to have anonymity protection, then you better not be fingerprintable as well. Right. Yeah, so I, I've done this. I actually tried this a couple different times. I tried this with my regular browser, which for me, it happens to be Firefox on Mac. Um, and then I tried it with Tor browser and the same thing. And I found that even with Tor browser, um, it, it was, I was still unique. The, 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 it changed, the, the, the nature of the fingerprint was different, however, on my Mac... The thing that really gave me away in my particular case was the fact that I was using a massive monitor. I have, I have a really big monitor. So one of the things that your browser reports is how big is your monitor? What's the color depth of your monitor? And because I have a 4K HDR monitor, that's not common yet. Um, certainly not the size that I have. Um, mm -hmm. <laughs> I like a big monitor. It makes it made me really unique. That along with you know things like fonts and. Uh, my user agent, which is, you know, which was not only that I'm using Firefox, but what version of Firefox. Um, but then a Tor browser, the thing they cleverly reported, they lied about my, my, basically lied about my screen size and color depth to make it more generic, which made that particular part of my signature less unique. But the thing that was really unique was the, uh, the canvas fingerprint, which you, you could talk about here, but, um, I really would have figured that somehow, some way, Tor browser would have would have blocked that. So Tor browser currently, I believe, has a prompt and says, "Hey, this website is trying to mm. do canvas fingerprinting," and then you can either accept or reject that. 
So uh, maybe it was the you know uh, a prompt that you you didn't see uh, for some reason or yeah I, I think I did recall that I may have said yes and I couldn't figure out and then once I realized I did that I couldn't figure out how to go back and revoke that privilege right right yeah that's interesting uh, you know I think that for the you know you mentioned the screen resolution and if you resize your browser window in Tor it'll actually let you know hey look yeah. You're, you're resizing your browser window, and that makes you your browser look unique. Right. You better use the default browser size if you want to, you know, retain your anonymity. Yeah. And that's a really good warning to let people know about. Because what's scary is, you know, oftentimes if you're if you turn JavaScript off, then that's a pretty good protection. A lot of these properties are derived from JavaScript. You know, you have your uh, time zone. Um, a lot of the super cookies rely on JavaScript, and so if you turn JavaScript off, that's a you know that reduces your fingerprint ability a lot. Uh, it might not make you ununique, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but it reduces that. The scary thing is about screen resolution is that uh, you can use JavaScript to get that property, but there's a really really clever thing that trackers have done is that you can use CSS media queries. So CSS media queries basically provide different resources based on, you know, the size of your browser or your view pane. And, uh, you know, if you have, you can derive a cascading style sheet, a CSS Mm -hmm. file. Um, And this kind of just, you know, these CSS files are are just ways that um, you describe how this p- the page should be styled. Mm-hmm. Well, you can say, if the width of this web page is 833 pixels and the height of this web page is 476 pixels, uh, then display this unique URL or render this unique URL. Mm-hmm. And so even without JavaScript enabled, you can basically, you know, the, the website can check if that resource has been loaded just based on that, you, that you know, the CSS uh, media query, you know, loading this resource and saying, oh, yeah, that's the, the unique dimensions of that browser. So, you know, turning off JavaScript in this instance is no protection, wow. um, you know. And, I, you know, that technique, I think, is I, I'm constantly amazed at the <laughs> innovation yeah. that these trackers uh display because you know i hate it yeah. <laughs> i really uh you know it gets it gets on my nerves that they're that they're doing this to users but i am you know kind of from a technological standpoint oh, sure i i kind of marvel at the <laughs> innovativeness of it oh yeah wow so okay so just to back up a little bit so basically what we're saying is that is that the the sites we're visiting um, and the third parties, it, it, what a lot of people may not understand is that the web page is really a quilt. It's, it's, a, it's a mishmash of a bunch of different resources all put pasted together. And a lot of those resources are not from the site you're visiting. You're going to Amazon.com or New York Times or whatever. New York Times is only part of that. The, there's many, many other things being loaded, advertisements being the main one, uh, that are coming from completely other different sources. These are the third parties. And... And all these different companies, most likely the people that are not the first party, are, are interested in figuring out what you're doing. So they find different ways of tagging you. Some way to, like, to like, like I think back to the old Mutual of Omaha Wild Kingdom, and I'm dating myself here, but where, you know, they, they, you know, 
Bob would be in the helicopter and be shooting the dart at the, <laughs> at the, at the elephant on the ground that has a tag, a unique tag. So they could follow that thing through the wild. That's what they're doing to you. They're finding some way to tag you. So, and then they can follow you around. Now, my next question though is, okay, so they know that I'm user 554, you know, whatever million and, and some unique number that's attached to me. What is the likelihood that they've actually figured out that, oh, that's Carrie Parker. Yeah, I think that it depends on, one, if you log into services while you're browsing the web. You know, one big thing to identify you, I mean, Facebook, for instance, is using a Facebook pixel to tell where you're browsing. If you if a website has used this Facebook pixel, which is just a one-pixel resource that's included in a site that you visit, not Facebook, some other site, if it's included in that uh, site, then Facebook it loads a resource and knows you're visiting that site. Mm. And if you've logged into Facebook at the same time, then Facebook knows it's you. So I think it really depends on whether you're logging into services, you know. And a lot of the times, it can depend on you know whether you're searching for things that are particular to your locale. I think there's a question of like whether. Um, someone who is trying to figure out who this particular user is can do it. Um, you know, if you're, you know, uh, not the NSA, for instance, mm-hmm. can you figure out who a user is based on their browsing habits, say, for instance, in the Tor browser, or anyone that, you know, is using a VPN, mm-hmm. can they figure out who that is based on their browsing habits? So that's kind of a, you know, advanced tracking technique where you're particularly targeted just because of you know your behavior or who you are so there's kind of the theoretical aspect of can i be identified but also is this happening automatically to everyone Mm. and i think that you know generally if you're not using something like tor browser i think chances are you if you're being targeted by a state actor you can you know you you can you can be you can rest assured or uninsured (laughs) that you're going to be able to be uniquely identified and pinpointed your, your identity. Right. Whereas if it's happening automatically, you know, I, um, I think it depends on whether you're logging into services often. There's this really interesting type of advanced tracking that was documented in 2017 by researchers at the Princeton Center for Information Technology Policy. And it relies on this technique called, uh, with, with, in, within the browser, you've probably seen it when you log into a site. And you log into a site, uh, and it prompts you, and it says, would you uh, like Firefox or whatever to save this login for Facebook.com or whatever? Mm-hmm. And so this is a browser prompt. You click save so that you can log in next time. Mm-hmm. And this is a great security measure, for instance, because... You know, you can generate a random password for every single site out there, and you don't have to remember your password. Right. But it also it makes you susceptible to this really novel tracking technique. So what happens is you log into example.com and save it. And example.com loads a third-party script. That third-party script basically presents an invisible login screen hmm. that you don't see but your browser automatically fills in your username and mm-hmm. password and clicks login. And then the third party figures out, because it's included in the page, 
it figures out what those login credentials are and then sends off your email address and password or your username and password to that third party. And this was seen on over 1,100 of the Alexa top million sites. Oh, my. Uh, this is a you know really novel tracking technique. Now, are they saving and your actual password or the hash of the password? So, yeah, they're sending the, the hash of okay. the uh, email address. And I don't think that the researchers actually uh, observed the password hash being sent. So this was something that they were using in order to get a unique identifier for that user. Right. And it's your email address. It's a right. persistent identifier oh, yeah. that follows you throughout years or even decades. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, this is something that, you know, in your case, do, you, do they know who I am personally? In this case, it would be yes. Right. And that is something that's been kind of a recent, well, recent, maybe in the last maybe five years. Uh, it seems that websites, it used to be that you could pick a username and a password. So that username could be as weird or random as you wanted. It could be, you know, as much gobbledygook as your password, if you, you know, in a lot of cases, which is unidentifiable. But uh, most of them now, your username is your email address, which makes sense. It's practical from their standpoint because they're going to want your email address anyway. And that your email address should be unique globally. So why not just make your username your password? Well, unfortunately, it's a big privacy hit because now there's you can't you can't anonymize yourself through that anymore, and it's become commonplace to have your username be your email address. Yeah, and I think that like this is a sensible decision from site administrators. What the Princeton researchers found out is that site administrators didn't even know this was happening, and they not only didn't know this was happening. But they didn't know which scripts it was, which scripts were actually doing it, hmm. because these were trackers that were being included in the page by being sideloaded or included by other scripts. Yeah. So this is you know a huge problem that the when they um, discovered this and they were trying to remove it from uh, this one site they were contacting. They actually needed to, to, to tell the, the site administrator, oh, it's this ad network that's doing it. And this kind of gets back to the broken permissions model of the web in general, where if you include, and you know, by and large, when you include a resource, it's going to be included in the first-party context. What, what I mean by first-party context is the site that you're directly visiting, say, example.com. Well, if it includes a third-party resource, uh, some script from another part, you know, from another company or whatever, then it's loaded uh, as if it has the same permissions as example.com directly. Hmm. So, you know, unless they're doing something like including this in an iframe, uh, which is, you know, a website kind of think of it as a, as a website within a website. Um, and so unless they're doing a, you know, a, a very specifically sandboxing these resources, they're loaded as if they have first-party permissions. And that's a really broken model yeah. for, for the web. Wow. It's just amazing, all the, uh, all the ways that we are tracked in the web. Uh, thanks for going through all that for us, and it's tricky. Uh, but it was, I think, a necessary background for the what's come next, which now, now we need to get into how do we handle this? What do we do about this? How do we protect our privacy? What are, what are some solutions? And 
that little bit of a teaser trailer, we're going to end part one of my interview with Bill Bennington. You'll have to tune in next week to get the solutions to all these problems. And uh, he'll talk a lot about his tool, Panopticlick, and how we can use that to determine how unique we appear as we walk around the web, how recognizable we are. Uh, because a lot of these websites, we've come up with all these different ways for tracking. And then, you know, there's this cat and mouse game of, well, we we track this way and then someone comes up with a way to block that tracking. And then they come up with a slightly different way to track you. And then someone else comes up with a way to mitigate that tracking. And uh, it's it, it's really gotten crazy. And, and, and as you can tell, the kind of links that they're going to just to keep track of who we are and to recognize us as we as we walk around the web digitally um, and try not to leave footprints, it's hard. It's really hard. So when we come back next week, we're going to talk about solutions and things you can do to try to prevent uh, all this crazy, crazy tracking. Now, at the end of next week's show, we're going to talk about several solutions. And, and so we will also give you some great uh, resources from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. But I would like to just make this request that these guys are doing some really, really great work for us out there. And um, I can't stress that enough. There's, there are several other sites doing it as well. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but as long as we're talking with EFF and talking about the EFF, uh, take the time to go and donate some money to these guys. Uh, go to the, uh, EFF.org and look for the big old donate button. Um, send these guys some money, either a one-time thing or an ongoing thing. And I'll, I'll make one other point. And when you, when you sign up, uh, one of the things they'll do is they'll offer to send you, a, you know, depending on what level you join, a sticker or a T-shirt or something like that. Go ahead and, and get one of those and, you know, wear it, post it proudly. And when somebody asks you who that is and what they're about, and I used that to start the conversation, um, these guys are doing some great work and they uh, they deserve to be recognized for what they're doing and, and to spread the word so that other people know that uh, they're doing this kind of stuff. So anyway, uh, that's enough of that. Uh, that'll wrap it up for this week. Thanks so much for listening. I'll tune again next week for part two of my interview with Bill Buddington, and we'll go over the solutions to some of this tracking problems. And until then, everybody, stay safe. And as always, don't get caught with your drawbridge down.